throughout his letter, James has insisted that Christians must embody their beliefs. They need to put their faith into action. So for James, the key to the Christian life is perseverance rather than simple profession. Action rather than mere affirmation. So this is the way that he does it throughout the whole letter. Christians must endure trials. They must be doers of the word and not hearers only. They must adopt true religion, not one marked by private piety, but by personal holiness and provision for the vulnerable. They must fulfill Christ's kingly law that has love for God and love for neighbor as its central commands. They must speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. They must show that they've been transformed by the gospel by using their speech to promote life instead of death. They must demonstrate by their good conduct that they've received wisdom from above. They must live according to that wisdom instead of living according to the wisdom from the world. They must choose friendship with God over friendship with the world. This is the emphasis in James's letter. Your faith has to be put into action. That's his emphasis in James 2, 14 through 26. So this whole text is really just a sustained argument making one point, that real faith works. Real faith will make itself known in the way that you live. He's just teaching that Christian disciples actually follow Jesus. They don't just say that they like him. So what I want to do this morning is to walk you through James's argument. And this might seem a little bit weird, but I, I just want you to see every bit of this argument as we go, because what happens often when we read an argument like this is we'll grab a section of it and think that's what James is getting at, when in reality, that's just supporting the point he's trying to make. So I'm going to give a little header for each section so you can understand what James is doing. And then... I want to follow it up by giving two practical theological implications for us now, for Resurrection Church. What should we do because of this text? So we'll begin by identifying James's thesis. You need to think of this as a persuasive speech. This is his thesis. Faith without works is no good. It does not lead to salvation. So he states this proposition with two rhetorical questions that demand a no for the answer. So in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims they have faith but does not have works? The answer, it is no good. Can such a faith save him? The implied answer, absolutely not. This proposition effectively restates what James has already taught about the Christian life in verse 22 when he's talking about becoming a doer of the word and not just hearers. So he could have used rhetorical questions then. What I'm trying to say is for all of the confusion that you might run into with faith and works and the way they relate, all James is doing in this text is the same thing that he did in chapter one. There he could have said, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to hear the word, but does not do it, can such a hearing save him? It's the same thing articulated in a different way. To all of those questions, the answer is no. Simply hearing the word 
does not save, even though the word has the power to save. It's the implanted word which is able to save you, but you must move beyond simply being a hearer to being a doer. The same is true of faith. Faith leads to salvation, but only real faith leads to salvation. And the way that you know it's real faith is that it will be filled with life and action and deeds. So that's his proposition, his thesis. Faith without works is no good. It does not lead to salvation. So now he's going to illustrate his point, drawing an analogy to the other virtue of love. So faith, hope, and love go together. He's saying they function in the same way. He's illustrating faith's inability to save if it doesn't have action with an analogy of love. Love without action is no good because it isn't really love. So verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the bot needs, what good is it? Implied answer, it's not good at all. In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. So just as hearing without doing is not real hearing, and statements of love or wishes of love without action is not real love, so to faith without acts in keeping with that faith is not genuine faith. It's an imposter. It's a pretend faith, a phony faith, a faux faith. It's not real faith. So it's very similar to someone who might put on their resume when they're applying for a job experiences that they've never had and qualifications that they've never earned. They can say that they have them. They can print them on an official resume. But if they get that job and they're called upon to perform what they say they're qualified to do and they can't do it, are those qualifications real? No, they're not. They're good for nothing. James is saying, you Christians might put on your spiritual resume that you have faith and love, but if it's not accompanied with the ability to act on it, you're lying. It's not true. It's useless. So he's made his point. He's illustrated it. And like any good persuasive speaker, he's going to anticipate an objection. Here's, and, and he's going to name the objection before anyone else can so he can disabuse them of wrong ideas. Here's the objection that an imaginary person makes. Faith and works can exist independently. So they're saying the opposite of what James is arguing. He introduces this imaginary dialogue partner. But when we look at the text, it is a little bit complicated. Look at 10 English translations, and there will be a lot of diversity here. Many English translations insert quotation marks in verse 18, indicating the presence of a direct quote. This is what the Christian Standard Bible does. That's what I'm preaching out of. And I don't think that it's helpful because it doesn't make any sense. Because the quote sounds like someone's agreeing with James, when actually someone's objecting. So I want to suggest that because the Greek text, does, text doesn't have quotation marks, and we're just trying to guess about whether or not there's a direct quote, I want to suggest that there's not a direct quote, and we should take the verse in this way. It's James speaking, saying something like this. You know, faith and works go together, but someone is going to say that you, the speaker, have faith without works, and that I, James, have works, and I don't necessarily need faith to have it. So it's not a direct quotation. It's just, you know, someone among you would say that you do have faith without works, 
Not true. So I like the way that the, the NLT puts it. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, other people have good deeds. That's the point. Someone is trying to separate faith and action. So for all the complications there, all you need to be able to say is someone is objecting to James, and he's saying you're wrong. Okay? So he responds to the objection with the idea that real faith must include action because faith without action is demonic. So James responds to the challenge in the second half of verse 18 by saying, show me your faith without works. Can't be done. Show me that your qualifications exist by not performing them. Impossible. That person has to admit that faith can't be evidenced apart from works. In other words, someone who claims to have faith but can't demonstrate it in the way that they live can't really claim to have true faith at all. James goes on, you can't do it. You can't show me your faith without works. I will show you faith by my works. That's the way that we demonstrate our faith. Faith in action is real faith. It can be seen. Faith without action is a false faith. It's just an illusion. So he continues his jab in a very sarcastic tone. You believe that God is one. So he's referencing here the distinctive Jewish belief in one God, in the monotheistic God. This is appropriate because this is a core tenet of Judaism. So he's saying, I'm going to get to the very heart of your doctrinal affirmation of faith. You believe that God is one? Well, that's good, but it's not good enough. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Here he's referencing the Shema that brings together faith and action. So he's telling them, your affirmation of faith doesn't go far enough. You need to keep reading. Listen, Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Carefully observe the commands of the Lord your God in the decrees and statutes he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in Yahweh's sight. Are you catching on to where James picks up on be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word? This has been in Israel's scriptures forever. He's just making it really plain. So returning to his jab, he says, you believe that God is one? Good. Good for you. Whatever. You're not going far enough. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. They're doing more than you are, and that's still not going to save them. So he here pointedly accuses the one who affirms an essential essential doctrine, but fails to allow that doctrine to work itself out in love and obedience of holding onto a demonic faith, or better yet, holding onto the true faith in a demonic way. Can that kind of faith save? No. Instead, it aligns you with the demons and destines you for damnation. Being a Christian is about more than just affirming an essential doctrine. So then he challenges his listeners. Are you willing to learn? Senseless person. Read blockhead. Are you willing to learn? Do you see how clear this is? Let me give you two proofs. Proof number one. Abraham the patriarch acted on what he believed proving that his faith was real. So James mounts his case with the example of Israel's patriarch, Abraham. 
although Abraham believed God and God credited his belief as righteousness, the vindication or proof of Abraham's faith didn't come until later when he was called to act upon it in a particular way. Now, if you look at our text, there's the plural, his deeds, his works, plural. Abraham did a lot of right and good things. Maybe James has them all in mind. He showed hospitality to the three visitors, the Lord. He, he obeyed the Lord in a variety of ways, even though he failed in a variety of ways. Ultimately, his faith was proved whenever he was called to put it into action. So he writes, Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So earlier in Abraham's life, justification declared. That declaration of his righteousness did not exempt him from obeying God later on in his life. No prior justification that we might have, no declaration of righteousness that we receive, exempts us from a life of obedience and love. Now here, I don't think that James is talking about justification in Pauline terms. He's not talking about it in the same way that Paul does in Romans. Instead, he's simply stating that Abraham's faith was revealed, tested, proved, vindicated in his obedience. He showed his faith to be real with his actions. He showed that he trusted God's promises by following through on God's commands. It's the same thing that the author of Hebrews gets at in chapter 11, verse 17 through 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. All that this author is saying is Abraham believed that God would keep his promises, and he acted accordingly even when it didn't make sense. Abraham's faith, then, wasn't merely an intellectual assent. It was living and active and obedient. And because of that, Abraham was called God's friend. Now, James is just forecasting where he's going to go in chapter 4 when he's going to tell us, be friends with God, don't be friends with the world. How are we a friend of God? By believing and acting and keeping with God's promises and commands. So proof number one, that real faith works, Abraham. Proof number two, Rahab the prostitute. Rahab acted upon what she believed and it led to her salvation from God's judgment. So I think James is considering his audience and realizing that some of them might say, hold up, James. Abraham did that because he's special. He's the patriarch. He, he went, entered into a covenant directly with God. He's a spiritual giant, so of course he's going to act on his faith. But I'm just a normal believer. I'm just your average Christian. I don't need to go ahead and do that. Enter Rahab, not Abraham the, the patriarch, Rahab the prostitute. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? Rahab put her faith into action. Although she was a prostitute and a pagan, 
destined for God's judgment. She believed that God was going to build his kingdom on earth, and she wanted to be on God's side. She wanted salvation and life. So she protected the scouts, sent them out by another way, and instead of experiencing God's judgment on Jericho, she experienced God's blessing and salvation. She had a faith that worked. Can that kind of faith save? Yes, it can. I think this example is so helpful because it shows us how nonsensical it would be to claim that we have faith without acting. If Rahab simply said, I believe that God is one, I believe he will build his kingdom here, and did nothing, would her faith have been real? No. Could it have saved her? No, because she would have stayed in Jericho. Instead, her faith acted. She put it to work. So after giving these two proofs to make his point, he ends with an aphorism, this statement of truth. A body without a spirit is dead, or as a body without a spirit is dead, it's, so also is faith. So a body without a spirit is just a corpse. Faith without works is a spiritual corpse. We're not intended to construct a full-blown anthropology from this aphorism. So you might open a systematic theology textbook and they'll structure their whole ex explanation of how humans work, what we're made of from this verse. That's not what James intends to do. He just simply is trying to say, if you have encountered someone who is alive and then they died, they're a corpse. Their animating principle is gone from them. So also someone who claims to have faith is like a corpse without an animating principle that actually gives it life. It has nothing to do with eternal life, nothing to do with salvation. Faith without works is a rotting corpse. That's James's point. I think James makes a tight case and a good argument here that our faith needs to work itself out in life. You may have noticed, though, that I gave an explanation of James's argument with hardly a reference to Paul in what seems like a contradiction between Paul and James. I did that because I want you to see that the logic of James' argument, when it's kept together, makes perfect sense. And in fact, it just sounds like the sayings of Jesus. It sounds like Jesus, and it sounds like Paul, when Paul in Acts tells people to do works in keeping with repentance. There's no contradiction between the two. Now, if we had more time, it would be well worth our while to look at why it seems like it contradicts and why it actually doesn't. And I hope to do a podcast on this, but it just couldn't fit in the sermon. My point is, James' argument stands by itself. There is no conflict with Paul. This, he, he's dealing with um, obstetrics, the, Paul is, how someone becomes born by faith. James is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics. How do you continue living by faith? So, so they're talking about two different things. So here's my summary of James's argument. James's thesis is that faith without works is no good. It's not able to save you. He draws an analogy between faith and love. A verbal expression of faith without action is no better than a verbal expression of love without action. Someone might object that it's possible to separate virtue from action, faith from deeds, but James argues that the two must go to debt together because when it comes to faith, even the demons 
assent to the reality of the one true God, but their faith lacks repentance and obedience. It's no good. It won't lead to salvation. So if someone's willing to learn, they they should consider these individuals from the Old Testament who acted on their faith, who received salvation from God's judgment and found a place among God's people. Rahab is the best example for us. She was a Gentile. We're Gentiles. We find belonging and salvation through faith that works. Static faith is like a body without a spirit. It's a rotting corpse. That's what James is saying. I want now to give you two theological implications of this text. But I want to preach to us in this room. I don't want to preach to the church at Galatia. If I were preaching to the church at Galatia, I would say something different. I want to preach to you. I don't want to preach to the Pope in Rome. I would say something different to him because the text speaks to those situations, but I think it speaks to us in a very unique way. Implication one, we must reject dead and deformed orthodoxy and affirm a living faith. So James makes clear that the right affirmation of doctrine is a necessary component of following Christ, but not sufficient for finding salvation. He pointed out that even the demons intellectually assent to the core teaching of Israel's faith, but they won't find salvation. Now, in other settings, I've tried to stress that Christianity is a way of life that's concerned with the whole person, the intellect, our affections, our behavior, right doctrine, right affections, right action. Christianity is all-encompassing. It deals with the whole person. If we grab onto just one of those, we grab onto necessary but insufficient aspects of the Christian faith. God's always been concerned about the whole person, and he's made that especially clear in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Now, as I'm saying this, you might hear my warning to reject dead and deformed orthodoxy in favor of a living faith, and imagine that I really am only talking to the Pope in Rome to Roman Catholic Church or other denominations that affirm right doctrines in the creeds, but practice an otherwise lifeless, joyless, passionless Christianity. I am talking about that. I think that Protestants dealt with that a long time ago. People are still prone to that. It still exists. But I don't think that's the inclination that we have in here. This is what I mean. Some Protestants rightly recognized that there was a problem of dead orthodoxy in high churches, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church. And in response, they wrongly dispensed with the creeds and other formative spiritual practices that did articulate true doctrine as they rejected the rest of dead orthodoxy. So what I'm saying is often we pendulum swing away and we throw out the good along with the bad. And I think that Protestant has done that on the whole. They dispense with the whole of dead orthodoxy, including the orthodox parts. Then they shifted their focus from the essentials that they did away with as they left dead orthodoxy and turned their attention to what was really vibrant and lively debate about other matters ranging from third-tier doctrines like eschatology or how many points of Calvinism you affirm, 
into conscience issues like music preferences, modesty standards, or American politics. So, so they shifted their attention, and they found um, everyone was dry and stuffy about core doctrines, but we have lively, robust, exciting engagement about all these other issues. We're reading the Bible again. We're disagreeing with one another. We actually care about what we believe, unlike dead orthodoxy that didn't really care, it seemed. Then instead of contending for the Bible and the essentials of the faith, Christians just disputed about the Bible. But everyone was zealous. We all love the Bible. It's lively. We're gone and done with the dead stuff. It feels like we're engaged. The church has created the illusion of life, not real life, but the illusion of life through enthusiastic debate about the distinctives that made them in their church better than all the other churches out there. They picked up the exclusionary tactic. There are a lot of good churches that affirm the faith, but we're the best because of all these other issues. Other churches created the illusion of life through entertainment, co-opting celebrity culture, adopting the hip and the trendy, to have smoke and lights and things that will get your heart going and you feel alive. You don't feel like the dead orthodox. You're alive. But it's actually just entertainment. That's the inclusionary tactic. Come and have fun. So, both of these tactics prize keeping people engaged actively in a way that seems alive and also comfortable according to their personality types and convictions, but at risk losing poor Christianity in the process. So they were solutions that did away with the feeling of deadness. Life-like things sprung up. And over decades and centuries, poor Christianity was lost, and church after church dies because they staked their engagement on that thing that made everyone feel alive that couldn't last because it's not core and central. So those different directions led to lively and passionate Christianity, but a thoroughly disfigured Christianity that progressively lost sight of the core elements of our faith. So dead orthodoxy was in place not with, replaced not with life, but a deformed orthodoxy that looked a lot like it was alive, like the church came back to life. But instead of a true resurrection, it's more like a zombie bride parading around as a whole and holy church. It's not the real thing. Now, we could become susceptible to the danger of dead orthodoxy. That's always there because we're humans. But more immediately, we're vulnerable to the danger of that deformed orthodoxy where we become filled with vigor about inconsequential matters, and then we compare the amount of life and emotions that we feel to uh, the, the dead orthodoxy of days gone by and say, we've found the solution, we've got it right. That's not the solution in the long run. Neither of those tracks, the exclusionary or the inclusivity track. So what's the solution? I want to give you three reasons. First, we need to recover the centrality of essential doctrines as our unifying center. This is what I've been talking about in our Bible class when doctrine divides. So if you have not been in that class, I would encourage you to listen to those lessons. I'll send you the notes and you can read about it. But we need to recover a deep and living commitment to the core doctrines of the Christian faith. We need to keep talking about where we've 
rejected dead orthodoxy and replaced it with a deformed and deficient orthodoxy. Second, just as James's hearers needed to move beyond the first line of the Shema, articulating a monotheistic declaration about God, to the second line, instructing to them to love God with all of their being, so too must we emphasize the necessity of love for God and for one another that's connected to our doctrines. So we need to affirm these doctrines that lead to a confessional unity, but then we need to also affirm the first order commands to love God and neighbor that contribute to an affectional unity, where we love the same God and we love one another. Third, we need to put our doctrinal affirmations and our affectional commitments into specific concrete action in our relationships with one another, in our relationship with our community and our world, as we seek to live out the virtues and the instructions of Christ, to live out the commands of Christ that he's given to all of us, particularly spelled out in the New Testament letters. We need to be hearers who do the word, living according to the perfect law of, of liberty. We must pursue personal holiness, remaining spotless from the world as we provide for the vulnerable, the orphans and the widows of our age. That's true religion. James is laying out a true religion that includes right doctrine, right loves and affections, and right actions. It's very simple but that's the path we have to take, and we have to grab onto all of them simultaneously, which means we'll progressively get better at them bit by bit. We can't say, let's get one in place perfectly and then move to the other. We're progressively growing in all of them. I think that's implication one. We must reject dead and deformed orthodoxy and affirm a living faith. Related to it, we must reject cheap grace and pursue costly discipleship. We must reject cheap grace and pursue costly discipleship. In Diedrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, he warned against the acceptance of what he called cheap grace, of what James calls faith without works. Bonhoeffer writes this, cheap grace means grace as doctrine, as principle, as system. It means forgiveness of sins is a general truth. It means God's love is merely a Christian idea of God. The world finds in this church a cheap grace cover-up for its sins, for which it shows no remorse, and from which it has even less desire to be set free. That's cheap grace. We want our sins paid for, and we don't want to give them up. Cheap grace means justification of sin, but not of the sinner. Because grace alone does everything, everything can stay in its old ways. That's the reasoning of cheap grace. The Christian better not rage against grace or defile that glorious cheap grace by proclaiming anew a servitude to the letter of the Bible in an attempt to live an obedient life under the commandments of Jesus Christ. The Christian need not follow Christ because we have cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Christ. That, that's what James is getting at here. He's saying a faith without works is the kind of faith that wants all of Christ's benefits without actually having to follow Christ on the road of the discipleship. It, it's the kind of person who says, 
Jesus, what must I do to gain eternal life? I affirm all the right doctrines. I obey everything in, in, in the law. And Jesus demands costly discipleship, and he goes away sad. It is silly of us to say that Jesus is the way that leads to salvation and not follow him until we secure it. Cheap grace and workless faith proclaim a gospel that promises all of Christ's benefits without ever following him. But cheap grace is not really grace, and an inactive faith is not really faith. Neither are Christian. We need instead a faith animated by action. Grace that's actually costly. We'll listen to Bonhoeffer again. Grace is costly because it calls us to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs people their lives. It's grace because it makes them live. It's costly because it condemns sin. It's grace because it justifies the sinner. This is the life that we're called to. A costly grace, a costly faith. A faith that receives the gracious word of Christ calling us to come after him, but also bears the burden of his yoke and commands. I'm afraid, though, that I'm being too general. I think in our minds, we can all apply this to someone out there. We need to apply it in here. So I want to sharpen it in two directions, two warnings. First, most of us have dearly loved friends and family members who grew up in the church and claim to be Christians, but have effectively abandoned Christ. If you ask them, are you a Christian? They would say yes. If you ask them, are you sure that you're saved and going to heaven when you die? They would say beyond a shadow of a doubt. If you ask them, are you following Jesus? They would be awkwardly silent. Grasping for some indication that they're disciples of Christ or proclaiming that because salvation is by grace through faith alone, we can ignore the next verse that says we're created for good works. Because we love them and care deeply about them, we say nothing. We affirm them in their actionless Faith in their cheap grace. We affirm that they can have Christ's benefits without having Christ himself. Now, I'm not suggesting that you antagonize your friends and family members. I'm not suggesting that you beat them over the head with this reality. I think for many of them, at least many of them in my life, appear to have walked away from Christ because they, the only way that they ever saw Christ was in dead orthodoxy or deformed orthodoxy. So they said, the church is not doing it for me. There is no life here. There's no salvation here. And they've been convinced that Christ is the Christ of dead orthodoxy or deformed orthodoxy when really all they've seen is a disfigured Christ and they walked away from him. So for most of us, we have the slow and surgical task of cutting away the dead orthodoxy that disfigured Jesus and the deformed orthodoxy that disfigured Jesus in showing people the Christ who they can follow and in whom they'll find life forevermore. There are people who don't go to church, and I want to say to them, I understand. I know where you were. 
I know what church you were at. I know what you experienced. And they convinced you that being a Christian meant blank. But that's not what being a Christian means. And it's so hard to explain this. I have so many friends that I grew up with who can't believe that I would be a pastor or a Christian because they think to be a Christian means to be what we grew up being. And it takes patient, slow work to show them otherwise. It takes not correcting them at every false turn that they make. It takes being a shepherd, pastoral, loving. It takes being like Jesus who said to the doubting Thomas, not you faithless idiot. Why did you leave? Why won't you believe? He says, come, feel the whole, see who I am. We have the opportunity to offer the whole Christ to hurting and broken people who think that Christ failed. We get to show them that Christ has not failed if we show them true Christianity. That's warning number one. Don't deafen the call of Christ to discipleship by affirming people in cheap grace, but also detect where they have misconstrued who Christ is and show them the true Christ. My second warning is to all of us. Some of us are those people, whether people who are living by cheap grace or people who have misunderstood Christ so we have left him, Others of us may become those people. Because church life is hard, and people get hurt in churches, and they confuse the broken church for Christ, and they're tempted to walk away. Any of us could be cheap grace people or confused about who Christ is people. And I want to say to you, to persevere in the faith, to keep clinging to Christ. Run after him. Don't adopt the spiritual corpse kind of faith. Adopt an active and living faith that can't be disconnected from Christ himself. You can't receive the benefits of Christ apart from him. There is no justification, adoption, salvation, eternal life, peace apart from Christ. When Christ calls his church as his bride to himself, he's not offering a friends with benefits kind of relationship, but a lifelong marriage whereby we must be connected to Christ, till death do us reuni- reunite us. It's not till death do, do us, I can't say anything. It's not till death do us part. In our marriage with Christ, till death allows us to see him more fully and clearly than ever before. So I want to call each of you to take up the costly path of discipleship, to warn you against the pretense of saving faith. And I want to say that if you want to talk to someone. Perhaps you are confused about what grace is. Perhaps you're confused about who Christ is. We want to talk with you and show you the whole Christ. That's why we're here. So though it may be awkward or strange or uncomfortable, talk with us. We'd love to talk. James shows us that the call to Christ is not merely a call to embrace and affirm certain doctrines, It's more than that. It's called to a certain way of life. A call to follow after Jesus, who is the way that leads to life and that promises salvation at the end of the journey. It's a call to reject a Christless Christianity 
in favor of abiding in Christ now and always. Let's pray that we would answer that call. Father, we thank you for this simple letter from James that spurs us on to grab onto the whole Christ and to abide in him and put our confidence for life and salvation and hope and peace in him and him alone. Protect us from wanting Christ's benefits and not wanting him. Even as we hear these testimonies of faith and come to the table, may we gaze on Christ once again. It's in his name that we pray.